Well, good morning. It's a uh, pleasure to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. Uh, if you will, with this time, turn uh, with me um, in a copy of your, a copy of your uh, scriptures to Psalm 127. And by way of background this morning, um, this psalm is a part of a collection of psalms. The psalms which we consider to be the song of ascents. And this specific psalm, um, his history tells us, as well as the title, uh, if you will, um, that this was written by King Solomon himself. Um, and in this psalm, uh, specifically, the, the Jewish pilgrims would have sang these collection of psalms as they are on their way back to Jerusalem. And this psalm specifically uh, reminds us of two things, that most of life is not spent in God's house. That most of life, you see, is either at work or at home. And as we consider these things this morning, admittedly, I confess that these verses at first glance seem to be uh, contrary to one another. We're speaking about work in the first section of the psalm, in verses 1 and 2, and it seems as though we're speaking about the home and children in verses 3 through 5. So turn with me now in your copy of God's Word, and let's hear Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we once again approach your holy throne, asking for your goodness and your grace to be displayed this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit would be poured out amongst your people. We pray that it would, that it would be poured out this morning upon the lost, O oh Father, that are, that are in our midst. We pray, Father, that your word would be made clear to us today. Father, that your name would be highly exalted in this place, that your people, O oh God, would be edified, built up, and encouraged, strengthened, and that those who are in our midst, Lord, who do not know you, that they would be saved, that they, O oh God, would be adopted into your beloved kingdom today, that today would be the day of salvation, or that all of heaven may rejoice if even one sinner in this place repents. O oh God, would you give us grace today as we sit under the preaching and teaching of your word? Would you help us to have ears to hear? But most importantly, would you help us to have hearts to obey? what you have called us to do. Father, we thank you now. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the beginning, God created all that exists, all that you see, the animals, the stars, the moon. And he did this in a matter of seven days. Six days he worked, and one day he rested. And of course, within the creation account, God creates man, the apex of his creation. He made man in his image. And because he did this, he gave man two mandates in the garden. These mandates were, to be, were for man to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. Those were the two mandates that God had given to man. Adam and Eve were obedient to this for a period of time. And, and then comes the fall. They were deceived and they ate of the forbidden fruit. And then all of eternity, excuse me, not all of eternity, but all of the world was cast into utter darkness. They were cast out from God himself. And work then, you see, became exceedingly difficult. Childbearing became exceedingly painful. 
Our work has been cursed. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, our work is now cursed. But this was a good thing, you see, brothers and sisters. God instituted work before the fall. It was meant for man to be a reflection of his creator and working six days and resting in one. But now our work at times is completely unsatisfying. Our work is completely tiresome and, and difficult and strenuous, and it brings us no lasting satisfaction. And of course, children and childbearing mothers, you know this. It is very painful. It is very difficult. And the theme that begins in the garden and runs all throughout sacred scripture is the mandate to, be, to work, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to rest in God. Yes. And the psalmist wonderfully includes all three of these themes in our text today, doesn't he? He includes the idea of work, the theme of work. He includes childbearing and, and having children and them being a gift from God. And then he also includes the theme of rest, where he gives to his beloved sleep, he tells us here. And so today, we will focus this morning, we will consider three things from our text. We will consider first, life at work. Secondly, we will consider life at home. And thirdly, we will consider resting in God. Look once more with me in Psalm chapter 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Work without the Lord is empty. If we summarize what the psalmist is saying here this morning, work without the Lord is in vain. It's completely empty. The word vain echoes three times in our text, doesn't it, in verses 1 and 2. And there are two types of workers that the psalmist is referring to in our passage. He's referencing that of a builder and that of a watchman. In our text, Solomon first focuses on the builder. And what is implied from our text is that everyone is a builder. All men and women are building something within their lives. Solomon, of all people, would have known this. He would have known the truth that he is explaining here, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. God, of course, gives Solomon the command to rebuild the temple, to begin to rebuild the temple. And so Solomon was given a set of rules and commands, and he knew if he, did, if he was not obedient to God, that all of it would be in vain. If he did not take every single detail, minute detail that God had given him in the instruction of the law to rebuild the temple, it would utterly fail. Nothing would be accomplished. But he listened. He listened to the Lord, and he was successful in beginning to rebuild the temple. The hand of God, you see, was with him in his labor. Solomon knew that to build in any other way would be vanity. It would have been long and toilsome work that ultimately would not please the Lord. Programs, building projects, families, businesses, both big and small, all have a beginning. Go to any Fortune 500 company today and you will find builders. Go to any farm today and you will find builders. Go to any school and you will find builders. Go to any hospital in America and you will find builders. Go to any church, you will find builders. But the primary point you see is not that all build. It's that unless you build with the help of the Lord, unless the Lord is building within that sphere of life, unless the Lord has his hand in it, unless you are building according to what God has commanded us, it is in vain. It is in vain. 
And once again, he's instituted work for our good to be a reflection of him from creation. And God does not want us to labor in vain. See, Solomon here is seeking to bring balance. He's seeking to bring balance of perspective into our lives because we are called to work. We cannot avoid it. Right. Once again, it's, it's reflecting God and, and we're doing what he has called us to do. Six days we shall work. One day we shall rest. So Solomon here is seeking to bring a balanced perspective to the Israelite people. And Israel's example is, is a good one for us, isn't it? As they would travel back singing this song. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You see, men, just like today, were called to provide for their families. And this would take weeks of travel to go back to Jerusalem. That's weeks of pay that they would not receive. You see, they were not paid on salary. Like some of us have the uh, huge benefit of being on salary. They had to trust God that unless he builds the house, unless he provides, it's in vain. And so they went on their journey as an example to us. And they would be singing this song, making melody in their hearts to God. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This was no doubt a leap of faith for them, wasn't it? It was a leap of faith in trusting themselves to God, providing for their every needs. This act of faith and submission to God is one of the primary ways that they did not labor in vain. Before we further think about labor this morning, let's consider the theology of work. For a moment. God, once again in creating man, gave him a mandate to work, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. And again, this commandment was given by God himself prior to the fall. Therefore, work is a good thing. Human beings in working, once again, are a reflection of God himself. Reflecting who he is. And it's, it's important to remember that When work was given in the garden to Adam, it was not toilsome. He did not eat the bread of anxious toil. And so once he sinned, he cast us into this toilsome work. Work originally constituted would have never been in in vain. We could not. He could not have worked in vain. It was impossible for his work to be in vain. And the fall of man is ultimately what makes work toilsome. Our work is now cursed, the scriptures teach us. And again, he calls us back to having balance. Solomon calls us back to having balance in the way we think about our work. And there are two mistakes. There are two things primarily that happen to us often, especially in our culture. Men and women either idolize their jobs or they are idle in their jobs. Because work is so hard, because work is so toilsome, They go to one extreme by idolizing their work, by worshiping at the foot of their altar, of their bosses and of their jobs, thinking that if they do not work and use their abilities, that somehow their work is going to fail. And so they give themselves completely to it, idolizing their their jobs and their work. But see, both of these responses, both the idolatry of work and being idle in our works are sinful. They're sinful responses to what God has called us to do. Idolatry of work, as I just mentioned, is not only widely accepted in our culture, but it's even promoted. It's even promoted. Men are especially prone to this, aren't we? We get together, 
as a group of men, and one of the first topics of discussion is our work, the programs that we are currently working on, the, the tasks that we are currently accomplishing, uh, competing for promotion, so on and so forth. <coughs> and often this is the case because men are so prone to associate themselves, not by who they are, but by what they do. We are so prone to associate ourselves by not who we are in Christ, but by what we do and by what we have accomplished. And so men and women have become the God of their work, you see. If you are not fully engaged, if you are not the God of your work, if you are not always there, always present, always answering calls, always answering emails, always building something, it will fail. It will come to utter ruin. And there's no trust for God in this way of thinking. There's no faith being exercised in the God who has created you in this way of thinking. In this thinking, we have become the God of our work. But women, you're not off the hook either this morning. Sometimes in our culture, especially women are prone to refuse to have children. The gift of all gifts that God gives because of promotion. Because of advancement. Or it may interfere with the progression of being the next general manager or CEO at your company. When deadlines are piling up, you become so anxious you forget God throughout the day. The do-outs are there, the suspenses, the children need taken care of, the children need homeschooling. And so we just forget God, we get on with our day, we pay him no mind to help us in what God has called us to do. Idolatry of work is one of the main ways that people work in vain. If your job is your idol, you simply can't expect the Lord to be in it. You can't expect the Lord to prosper your work as you worship at the foot of promotion and advancement. Yes, you must work diligently unto the Lord, entrusting him with your work and living with the results. So there's the idolatry of work, which I believe most men and women are prone to go to that side of the camp. But there's also idleness in our work. We are prone to be idle. One of the most subtle and perhaps most dangerous forms of idleness in our work is our failure to recognize God's purposes for us in the workplace. We see our jobs as insignificant. We're not actually accomplishing uh, the Lord's work here. We're not actually glorifying him and, and, and how we work. And so our hearts are idle with this thinking. And this thinking, you see, doesn't necessarily lead to inactivity of the hands and of the feet, but inactivity of the heart. We go throughout our days. We're just pushing through week by week. We're not thanking God for what he's helped us to accomplish. And we're idle. And this work, you see, leads to vanity. I mentioned the inactivity of the heart. Again, not only are our hands and feet idle, but our hearts are idle. Only which God can see. Only which that God can see. Our hearts begin to embrace being idle in our work because we see some of our co-workers, they could care less about accomplishing the company's task. So why should we? Why should we? Right? We work hard all day long, and yet they, they get the same pay, pay, paycheck we get, and yet they do nothing. They sit on their hands. When the boss comes, they grab the broom, right? They, they quickly grab the room as though, as though they've been sweeping all day, right? And so we're too prone to become idle in this way. You see, this heart doesn't grasp how God is using your work to shape and fashion you more and more into the image of Christ. This is the heart that denies Christian responsibility to serve as if you are serving and working for the Lord. 
and idleness of the heart, brothers and sisters, is extremely dangerous. It will lead to joylessness in your job, complaining, discontentment, laziness, and people-pleasing. These are some of the various sinful fruits of being idle in our work. Couldn't help but in studying this passage specifically of thinking of the Tower of Babel. Now, what was it about the Tower of Babel that made it so exceedingly sinful? Was it because they wanted to build this high tower? Or was it because they wanted, nothing, they wanted God not to be in their work? They totally disregarded God and being, being a part of their work. They wanted their security to depend upon themselves and their abilities and their gifts. I had the privilege about a month ago of being a part of a field exercise. And those of you who are in the Army uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. And one of the main... Um, one of the main things that a commander will require their troops to do is to establish a perimeter, establish security, right? So that the enemy may not enter to build the fort up. We consider this to be called the fort operating base. So immediately, soldiers get out of their trucks, establish fighting positions, set up sea wire and all these other things that would deter the enemy from coming in. And it just reminded me, just like places like Afghanistan and just like the city of Jerusalem and other places all around the world, but unless the Lord watches over the house, the watchmen, they watch in vain. They watch in vain. Brethren, shifting now to verse 2, I want us to think about the idea of anxious toil, eating the bread of anxious toil, rising early and going late to rest. Have any of you ever eaten the bread of anxious toil? Have you ever woke up and the, the deadlines are just so immense that it just crushes you? You, you, you just, you're just crushed from the moment you wake up. The things you were supposed to get done last week didn't get done. It's Tuesday and the things you were supposed to get done on Monday weren't, weren't accomplished. And so they just pile up and it begins to just burden you and weigh you down. You begin to chew and to eat on the bread of anxious toil. And sometimes this can, we can begin to neglect things like rest and sleep which God has given to us, hasn't he? He says he, he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. And so, and so instead of working from nine to five, you work from five to nine, eating the bread of anxious toil. Not much progress is made, though, to your great frustration. Not much progress is made. So what are the implications of these things, of eating the bread of anxious toil? Notice again in verse 2b, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The psalmist gives us a most fitting and delightful answer. He says that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep or rest. This is how we know that the Lord cares for us and that he would not have us to either idolize our jobs, be idle in our work, or eat the bread of anxious toil. He would have us to work, yes, diligently unto him, but resting in him, trusting in him to help us accomplish all that we need to accomplish. Before we get into some application from our text, I'd like to bring some balance to what the psalmist is not saying. The psalmist is not giving either the Jews or Christians today an out of not working hard, of not being diligent, of not trying to outwork the unregenerate that are in your midst. Paul says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. We are called to work and be diligent. But what we are not called to do is to entrust ourselves 
as though we are the God of our jobs, as though we are the God of our do-outs and our suspenses that need to be met, as though if we're not there, it will fail. We are not God. God never sleeps. We need rest. And so do you trust God in your work? Really? Do you trust him? Do you trust him in your labors? Or do you eat the bread of anxious toil? How would you know? What would this look like in the life of a believer? One great test is how you view the Lord's day. How you view the Lord's day. Do you commit yourself to the faithful and public worship of God? Acts of mercy and service to your fellow brethren on the Lord's day? Or is this a day you see to catch up and get ready for Monday, the Monday that's coming? This is a day where you set time aside so that you'll be ahead of the game on Monday. Or is it a day that you solemnly rest unto the Lord? You see, just like the Jews in singing this song on their way back to Jerusalem, resting in God, trusting in God to provide for their every needs, the Lord's day. One day in seven, God has given his children to rest, to rest in him. Brethren, don't use the Lord's day as a day to prepare for Monday, at least not in this way. Find rest for your weary souls in the arms of God. Use this day to your great spiritual and physical benefit by setting it aside each week in complete devotion to the Lord. And his people. This act of faith will transform the way you think about work and rest and bring much joy and satisfaction to your hearts. You communicate to God and to the people of God whether you trust him with your work by taking each Lord's day to rest from your labors. And isn't it ironic that in resting in God, taking the day off, setting your mind completely opposite to what will take place tomorrow, you actually find rest. For your souls. Actually find rest. The psalmist now transitions from life at work to life at home. Look again once more in verses 3 to 5. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. When he speaks with his enemies... In the gates. Psalmist transitions now from that of a builder and watchman to the gift of children, to the blessing of children, from emptiness, excuse me, to fullness. From the vanity of work without the help of the Lord to the blessing of children from the hand of God. Children serves the family, the psalmist says, in three ways. They are first a gift, an inheritance from the Lord. Second, they can serve as arrows in the hand of a warrior. For protection. And third and finally, finally, the family that fills his quiver with them is happy. They're the blessed ones in doing this. Now, before I get into further exposition of this psalm, I want to say something with love and affection for all who are here. Fertility is not a matter of merit in the eyes of God. And infertility is not a matter of demerit in the eyes of God. If you have the wonderful blessing of children in your home, it is because God has been very kind to you in giving this inheritance to you. 
Only God can give such a gift. Only God can work in the the womb of a mother and and shape and fashion the, the, the baby in the womb and bring forth life. Only God can do this. And it is not a matter of merit or demerit. God is not punishing you if you cannot have children. He's too kind of a God for that. He's too gracious to his people to withhold something good from them. He's too wise. And so we leave matters of fertility and infertility into the providence of God knowing that he knows best and he withholds no good thing from his people. Now with that disclaimer, let us consider what the psalmist is saying here. He says that children are a heritage of the Lord, or could also be translated inheritance, and that children can and should serve as protectors and defenders of the home as you grow old in your old age. The word children here could literally be translated as sons, and we know the prominent place that sons played in the life of Israel. They would have been the priests, the future kings. They would have defended the city. They would have been the watchmen. Sons played this very pivotal role in the life of Israel. We know in other places of Scripture like Genesis 33, when Esau and Jacob have been separate from one another, at war with one another, And what happens when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children? He said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Additionally, most of you are familiar with stories such as God giving a son to Abraham, to Hannah, and others throughout sacred scripture. Scripture acknowledges that in every case, children are a gift from God. They are a gift. A gift from the hand of God. And children, he said here in verse 4, to be like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Arrows, you see, are the warriors, means of protection. A bow is is no good without an arrow, right? If you do not have the arrow, you have no protection. So they are like arrows to their parents. Especially as parents age, children become that much more important to their parents for protection and safety. Sometimes preserving the quality of life or even prolonging it. And in looking at these verses, as children being a gift from God and inheritance, parents, you are to take care of your inheritance. You are to take care of your inheritance. There is a real biblical mandate given to parents all throughout sacred scripture. One that began with Adam and Eve, passed down to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, and even Solomon himself. And this mandate continues today. This mandate did not end with the closing of the Old Testament canon. It did not end when all of the Levitical priests were no longer considered to be a part of of, of the temple and, and, and things like that. And here's what we know about arrows. Parents, arrows are not sharp unless they are sharpened. Any hunter will know this. Your children will not automatically wake up one day and be sharp. They will not serve as the blessing that the psalmist says here without instruction and discipline. The scriptures are replete with examples of how and when we should discipline and disciple our children. The mandate is real, and God expects nothing less. If he's called us to be stewards of everything else, how much more our children? 
How much more? Parents, I know that so many of you already do this very well with your children. So this is not a rebuke for you. Just a loving reminder that children are gifts and we are called, we are mandated to disciple them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And contrary to popular belief, both in society and even in the church today, physical discipline is not in and of itself sinful. It is not in and of itself sinful to physically discipline your child. It is not an act of abuse or hatred toward your children. Rather, it is a necessary act of love. It is a necessary act of love. By God's grace and the pain of a spanking a child, this can teach them the consequences of their sin. Especially... And this can often lead to their salvation, especially when you have taught them the scriptures that God disciplined those whom he loves. God disciplines his children. Here are just a few quotes from scripture that communicate these truths. Proverbs 29, 15 says this, the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17 says, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Proverbs 23, 13 says this, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. You will save his soul. The psalmist closes here in verse 5 on the blessing of children, how they serve as a deterrent from our enemies in the gate. He says that blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And even today, the gate of the city is often guarded by soldiers with weapons to ensure the safety and protection of the city. Children, as they grew up, could serve and would represent the family with strength to deter the enemy from attacking them. Sons would often serve in the honor of their fathers in this way. And children, I want to take a moment to speak to you this morning. Since God has so blessed your parents, with you as children, you are also called to obedience. You are called to listen to your parents, to love the wisdom, to love the rod. Not because it feels good when you're going through the discipline of it, but because it's for your good. It's for your good. Your duty simply is this, children. Obey your parents in all things as this is pleasing unto the Lord. This is pleasing unto the Lord. By way of final application, I want to close with just a few thoughts. Children, as stated many times in this sermon, are the gracious blessing of God. They are the gracious blessing of God. And just like in our work, how we are prone to make idols of our work, how much more of our children? Some parents refuse to discipline because they love their children more than they love the commandment of God. They love their children more than they love the commandment of God. Sometimes this is what causes much strain on a marriage. Because one parent is loving the child, putting a child in a place where they should not be put. Placing the child above God and above the authority of the father or the mother that serves in that home. And this is dangerous. It's dangerous. Don't let your love for them disobey the commandment of God to discipline them and to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
I mentioned earlier that all are builders. All men and women are builders. They are all building something. This is not only true in the physical realm of life, it is also true in the spiritual realm of life. Since the moment of the fall, man has been working. Working to be right with God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, build your house on the rock. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And Christians, if you're here today and you're seeking somehow to work up enough good works for your salvation, it is utterly foolish. It is utterly foolish. And for those who may be lost here today, it is utterly foolish to think that because you have been obedient to your parents, because you have been obedient to the law of God, that somehow this has justified you, somehow this has made you right and fit for the kingdom of God. This is building upon the sand. We must not build upon any other foundation than that which is laid by the chief cornerstone himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm reminded of Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, where he's carrying this load. And the load can quickly come off if he would just entrust himself to the master builder, to the builder of all builders. And as he goes up this mountain and he comes to the cross and the backpack falls off, finally he has loosened and lost the burden of his sin. Because he's no longer trying to work himself into salvation. He sees that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who can take away the sins that he carries on his back. But two final thoughts and we'll be close, closing. Anyone that comes to Covenant Baptist will quickly realize that we have believed Psalm 127, haven't we? Lots of quivers are full this morning. <laughs> Lots of children this morning in the congregation. And it's a blessing. And I mentioned earlier that God has not been unkind to you if you don't have physical children of your own. You are not in some way inferior to your brethren who have children. And God, you see, he never withholds the gifts, does he? Because he's given us a son of all sons, a child of all children. He was willing to give up his own as a gift to humanity, so that they might be saved. He was willing to give up his son to come and to die on a cross so that your sins might be forgiven. This is the gift. This is the giver, brothers and sisters, of even the physical children we have. These should be pointers to the gift that God has given us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us meditate upon that, brethren. And one final thought is our final rest. Parents, even when you disciple, you discipline, you correct, our children sometimes go astray. They sometimes go astray. They sometimes go down the crooked path and not to the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. Even though you have done your job and you've done it well, yes, albeit imperfectly, you have sought to honor God. And you long, you long for them to turn back 
to the truths that you have once instructed them on. You long for the salvation of your children, even now as they are in your homes and you are teaching them the truths of the scriptures. And we long for a day of rest, don't we? We long for, for a day of rest, not just from our toils and troubles and disciplining and discipling our children. We long from it from things like work. We long to put off the burden. We long to put off our earthly duties. We long for more times like these where we are in the presence of God, with God's people, enjoying him, resting in him. Do you long for this day of rest? Do you long for a day where there are no more suspenses, no more emails, no more things required of you in that sense from an earthly standpoint? No more homework to teach the children? No more catechism? The day where your work will always and forever be blessed. No longer will the curse be found. The day of final redemption when the Lord returns and creates the new world, the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with his son whom he has given us. We will enjoy the inheritance that God has stored up for us. And first Peter tells us that this inheritance, this gift is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. This is the God that we serve. And so when we come to a psalm like Psalm 127, we see that God himself is with us in our work, with us when we are with our children, discipling them and disciplining them. And ultimately, yes, he gives to his beloved sleep in this life, but it pales in comparison to the rest that we will receive on that day of glory when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, returns. Oh, what a day that will be. So let us say like John the Baptist in Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Yes. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. We long for that day of rest where we will be with you in eternal glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.